Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. So back a couple of weeks ago, Stephen and I were talking about market psychology and efficient markets, juxtaposing the ideas of the efficient market versus behavioral finance and the psychology uh-huh. of, of how investors participate in the marketplace. And uh-huh. that was some pretty interesting discussion, but we didn't have time to get into the uh, more current event situation, talking about bubbles. The whole Bitcoin craze, since it's coming to so many people's attention, is calling a lot of people to reminiscences of the tech bubble or dot-com bubble back in the late 90s, which mm-hmm. may or may not be the case, but that's why I wanted to discuss this. So we've got Stephen and Gal back on the show from the Behavioral Finance Podcast, and then we've got Murray Williams here as well, and we're going to bat this back and forth. So welcome to the show again, guys. Glad to be here. Yep, likewise. Just for the sake of clarity, just to have disclosure for each of us, I currently own Ether. I do not own Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, but I own Ether. I actually do not have any investments in any cryptocurrencies at this time. And Murray? I'd like to take the fifth on that one. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd play the fifth too. (laughs) So even since we talked the last time, Stephen, it's crazy just to see what's happened with Bitcoin since then. That was only two or three weeks ago. Yeah, it's funny. I live in San Francisco and I've been here about a year. And so I feel like I'm in this hub space for all these new development. Like I'm always reading um, news updates from TechCrunch and all these different sources that are talking about, you know, initial coin offering is not like the new buzzword. And all these companies are gathering resources together just to make sure that they're the number one or like the new thing. And then so even like mainstream news that I see, like people are breaking out news on, on updates for like price updates with Bitcoin. Now I'm like hearing people at work talk about, oh, yeah, Bitcoin. I don't know what it is or Ethereum. Like, yeah, my friend is telling me about it, but I'm not too sure. But, you know, I have some in it. So people are curious enough to buy, which has been raising up the price in recent weeks or in recent months. But I'm a little bit concerned about the practicality in in investment. Like, are people riding the bandwagon or do they really genuinely have like an interest in the long term uh, achievements of uh, the blockchain technology, which I think is the silver lining in all this hype? Because Bitcoin has been rising steadily, but we also need to see developments in the technology as well as the, the legal space. So how does government enable the playing field, so to speak, for competition and competitive firms to, to further elongate this craze or this hype, if you so will? Maybe not so much as enable as prevent. If there okay. was legislation to prevent cryptocurrencies from being used because governments feel threatened, then that would right. inhibit development, I suppose. But, Cue the central bank. <laughs> yeah. But I think you call to attention a good point is that the, there's a differentiation between the underlying fundamentals of any market development and the price at which market participants are willing to buy and sell an asset, which is why I think this is such a timely subject. I was interested to get Murray's perspective because he comes from a more conservative investing standpoint. Six months ago, they might mention it like once a week on CNBC. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they're talking about it all day. Yeah. It's definitely become a phenomenon. And I mean, I've been familiar with it ever since it pretty much launched. But I mean, I've been following it probably ever since 
2011, I tend to believe in the value investing approach, especially when it comes to stocks. And you have to really look at the, the value of an underlying investment and determine if the price you pay for it is pretty much worth it. When I look at Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, I, I just see more of a, a speculative frenzy with something that really doesn't have a lot of value there. I mean, I understand the digital currency to kind of protect people from the hyperinflation of, of government-controlled currencies. I definitely see the appeal of it, and it's gone sky high, and people have made millions and billions of dollars on it. But I mean, just from a a use perspective or what do you really use it for? And I know people, more businesses have been accepting it, but it has just all of the markings of just the greater fool theory, and which is basically with any speculative bubble, pretty much, is how long do these things go on? I mean, and and history has shown that it's not going to keep going up forever. Just for the sake of clarity, can you explain the greater fool theory? The greater fool theory is basically... When the price of something keeps going up, the theory is that the more foolish people get, the higher the price they're going to pay. So when the number of fools run out and people realize that the price is not going to keep going up, then the price eventually collapses. And so with every speculative bubble throughout history, which is what we're going to talk about you know, in, in, in this program, the greater fool theory had applied to every single one of them. The way I interpret it has a lot to do with the psychology of it. People may be buying into something not necessarily because of the intrinsic value of it or because they think it is necessarily worth whatever price that they are paying for it, but that they think Mm -hmm. the next person down the line is willing to buy it for a higher price. So maybe I'm being foolish buying into it, but as long as the next guy is even more foolish to buy it from me at a higher price, then I'm willing to participate. That is exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, like the whole draw to this discussion at this point in time to talk about bubbles is to go back and look in history at very famous bubbles, try to identify what were the key factors around those bubbles, and then look at the situation of cryptocurrencies and then see, is it the same or is it different? Will the outcomes be the same or different? And see if we can learn from that. So Mm -hmm. let's just try to get on the same page. Stephen, how do you define a bubble and what comes to mind for you when you're talking about a bubble? Defining a bubble is as simple as something that's like an underlying asset that's overvalued or or a market space. There's no perfect alignment in the dissemination of information for valuing an asset and the actual practice in, in the production and consumption of that good or service. So in terms of the stock market, like in the late 90s, you had like the big tech bubble where everyone was investing towards the future without actually, you know, waving around the smoke and, and the mirrors and seeing what actual substance. Is there anything on the ground, anything tangible that has practicality and in investment? With the housing crash of the late aughts, a lot of people wanted to invest in, in real estate at that time because it was a perceived. It's always been a classic thing to own a home, but always perceived as a good asset class to have. So I think it's just like that compare and contrast of an actual good or service being traded and consumed versus the actual value that that good or service is providing. And when you have a significant enough mismatch, and I think this another key thing to mention is when you have a mismatch in, in those two concepts of actual value versus actual good or service, and then the people that are performing predatory practices to take advantage of the people just to, you know, to play on with what you guys had mentioned with the greater fool theory. Someone could know, I was just watching this clip from uh, Margin Call, 
where the investment bank is about to crash and they know that the storm is coming. And so they just want to dump all these toxic assets, knowing that the market space has the rules that were, if there's a willing buyer, then we're a willing seller, even though they know that what they're selling isn't per se valuable. It's, you know, something that where there's a mismatch in value of a good or a service and people are still consuming or trading it. And then you have those folks who, who take advantage and kind of exacerbate the problem. Yeah. Buyer beware, right? <laughs> yeah, that definitely yeah, is yeah. an example of a greater fool theory. How about you, Murray? Do you have any different perspective on that? I think I pretty much agree with that scenario. It's pretty much the gap between the actual asset price and what the going use value of it is. But the thing about it is the price of the asset it has to do with demand. And I mean, and, and demand can fluctuate as well as supply and, and regardless of what the use value is. Definitely, there, there's there's a gap between the asset price and then the actual use of it. I like to compare valuing a stock. You kind of look at the, un, the fundamentals of a company. And basically, back in the 1980s, corporate raiders would actually look at companies that they would buy out and they actually try to look at the actual tangible assets of a company. Like, for instance, if a company had $10 million in cash and real estate on the books of the company and their share price was trading at, say, $5 million cap, then it made a lot of sense to do a leverage buyout and try to do a hostile takeover of that company. But in this case of a bubble, you know, you've got underlying assets of a company, say 10 million cash and real estate, and, and, the, and the market cap is about 100 million. You know what I mean? And so you could classify that as a bubble. But yeah, I pretty much agree with it. it it's definitely a gap between use value and then, and then the asset price. But I would say one part that makes it a little bit difficult to very clearly define a bubble is that it's somewhat subjective because even a stock's absolutely even yeah. a company's yeah. value and a stock price is fairly subjective. On the one hand, you do have the intrinsic value or like the tangible value uh, if you liquidated all the assets of a company, sold it today, and then you would have mm -hmm. a certain value left over after that. So. Let's say you sold all of the assets of Amazon and you were left over with $300 billion or something, and that would be the worth of the company. But a large part of what the stock price trades at is based on the expectation of future earnings, which is not as tangible. A lot of that is going to be baked into stock prices, and therefore it makes it much more subjective as to what the fair value of a stock is, even, even though you can try to speculate based on earnings and stuff. But then to make it even more complicated is in the case of, say, a commodity, or now we're talking about Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies, it's not a company and not something that has earnings. So you're really talking about something that is not only intangible, but the price at which is reasonable is only a function of supply and demand, right. which makes it all the more hard to nail down as to whether or not you have a fair price or there is a bubble or isn't a bubble. Because one thing I would just add to what you said, Murray, about the current trading price versus the intrinsic value is that you could also say maybe just against the current price versus historical norms. So if there's some kind mm -hmm. of ratios or just pricing or whatever, and then you, you benchmark that across time against norms. So in the case of the stock market, I think a lot of people are comfortable with gauging bubbles relative to the price to earnings ratio. I think that, that's a pretty right. common one that people are comfortable with. 
people will say if the historical norm over a 100-year period is about 15 to 20 times earnings and today's prices are 30 times earnings, okay, maybe that's pretty high and 50 times earnings would potentially qualify as bubble territory or something. Still somewhat subjective and arbitrary, but easier to agree on, I guess. But then just to talk about how bubbles are actually forming, we'll kind of learn about this more as we're talking about specific cases in history. But in general terms, it's kind of like a um, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Momentum starts in an asset. If people just notice the price is going up, people jump on the bandwagon just because there's that herding mentality, which we talked about last time, Stephen. Yeah. So then there's the herding mentality. And then people notice that the price is going up. And then it's just a matter of speculation and, and the FOMO of not wanting to miss out on the prices going up, which then creates the momentum itself of the price going up because people are buying it. And then because people are buying it, the price goes up. So you've got the positive feedback loop, and it just keeps that circular momentum, keeps pushing it up and up and up until eventually you, you kind of go hyperbolic and run out of buyers and the price has to crash. With that being said, let's talk about specifically cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. Now, let's just get a verdict from both of you. Murray, do you think cryptocurrencies are currently in a bubble? Absolutely, and some more than others. I see that the prices of, for instance, Bitcoin and Ether, they're probably the most heavily traded ones. Everything I've seen about studying history of asset bubbles is just a classic speculative frenzy. Bitcoin, I mean, the, the purpose of it was to facilitate payments for goods and services digitally, not based in a specific government-sanctioned currency that you have to trade back and forth. I just, I definitely see Bitcoin and Ether in definitely speculative bubble territory, absolutely. Stephen, just what, what was your assessment of whether or not Bitcoin is in a bubble right now? You said it earlier. I mean, there isn't any like, I mean, we still use cash. The things that you can still, that are potentially pro big problem solvers. Okay, so the problems that cryptocurrency can potentially solve, you don't see any thorough uh, application of it. You still have to go through the weeds. A big part of the problem is this generational adaptation to technology. It's like I still have people at work that are still unfamiliar with like how to go on the email or just go on certain websites. And then so let alone you have this cryptocurrency phase where it's hard enough for me to comprehend. And I feel like I'm somewhat of a tech savvy person. And so I feel like just having an understanding of the market space and the product itself, there still needs refinement. And frankly, you're going to have to go through these type of ebbs and flows to, to get to that if we do ever come to that culmination to get to that meeting space of, okay, this is a technology that's practical. So yeah, I feel like there's a big bubble and that's part of the reason why I haven't invested anything in it, but I'm, I'm certainly studying the market space for a potential buy-in. But yeah, it's the wild west right now. Just to go back to the whole greater fool theory and the positive feedback loop of people continuously buying because the next person will buy. Although that is a clear example of inefficiency in the market, which I think completely refutes the full efficient market theory that we were talking about in the previous episode, mm -hmm. I don't think that means that you should never participate at all in a market that is acting irrationally. I think there is benefit to be had in participating in an efficient market, both on the momentum side and the mean reversion side, potentially. Now, there's obviously risk in that, but... My point being that even if you you would agree that cryptocurrencies are in a bubble, that doesn't necessarily mean that 
you have nothing to gain from participating in it. My personal assessment is I'm getting a little bit nervous in terms of where things have gone, how fast they've gone, because I became an investor because of the underlying fundamental potential of cryptocurrencies and the role that they can mm-hmm. fill in light of countries and central banks printing money excessively and taking on tons of debt. I think we've actually seen demonstrations and use cases of cryptocurrency over the last few months, especially that has really validated them through the examples of Venezuela and Zimbabwe, where they've had collapses basically in their economies and their currencies. And people have Mm -hmm. looked for alternatives to continue to conduct business because with a national currency that's unstable, prices are always fluctuating and it makes it very difficult to conduct business. So people have been able to flock towards Bitcoin, which I think has been part of the contribution to the price shooting up recently. But just to talk about the price, which I find interesting, even since I wrote my notes for this podcast, I wrote here for Bitcoin that in the last two years, Bitcoin went from $350 to $8,000. So when... When I wrote the notes, it was at 8000 And now, as we're recording this, it's at 12440 <laughs> which is already up another 50% from the notes <laughs> that I wrote. Oh, man. What's the, what's the, what's the kicker on that, dude? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty insane. That's nuts, man. I was talking to a guy who, who bought Bitcoin five years ago, and he, he's doing pretty well. So, But you know, another example that, that I could bring up that goes in Bitcoin's favor is, I don't know if you all remember this, but a couple of years ago, through the country of Cyprus and the Mediterranean, they were going through a, an economic crisis, and then the government yeah. just decided to confiscate, I don't know, 10% of all the, of all the bank balances yeah. in Cyprus. Yeah. So yeah, I heard about that. A lot of people learned after 2009 what bank bailouts were in terms of the government mm-hmm. giving mm-hmm. banks a bunch of money to make them solvent. But mm-hmm. what you just mentioned about what happened in Cyprus is the opposite of that, which is what they called a bail-in. So another way to make banks solvent when they don't have enough money is because the way banks operate, they make loans of customers' deposits to other customers. So it's kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul in how banks operate. What's even more crazy about it is they're not only robbing Peter to pay Paul, they're also robbing Peter and John at the same time. So they never have enough money to make all the payments. One way you can kind of rebalance the books to make the banks solvent is to cancel out the bank's liabilities to depositors. So if you deposited $100 in the bank, And they say, oh, you know what? We don't have the $100 that you gave us to pay you back, but we've got 50 to pay you back. And so if they do that to every customer, then maybe all of a sudden they have enough money. That's like reverse fractional lending. Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a way to deleverage a bank by canceling out what they owe to people. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And I'd like to hear the stories about all the banking clients in Cyprus, whether they kept continue keeping their money in those banks. Well, a lot of times when these kind of economic collapses and, and calamities happen, obviously, if people have free choice, then they're going to avoid risks and traps that seem horrendous to participate in. But that's where the government regulation and control and clampdown comes because Venezuela was having these kind of problems of currency collapse and people wanting to withdraw their money or exchange it to other currencies. But Venezuela was fixing the exchange rate. 
people were only valuing the Venezuelan Bolivar at 10,000 to one U.S. dollar or something like that. Whereas the rate that the Venezuelan government was willing to offer to someone was only seven Venezuelan Bolivar for a U.S. dollar, <laughs> which is like has no, has no bearing on reality. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of tangent. But back to the whether or not Bitcoin is in a bubble. The thing about studying history that I think the point of going into the other examples in history of bubbles to try to compare as to whether this is the same or not to qualify cryptocurrencies as being in a bubble. The thought that came to my mind was hearing about people who are never investors on a regular occasion talking about it and wanting to buy into it and making a bunch mm -hmm. of money from it. The example that that relates to in history to me is the dot-com bubble just reading about how taxi drivers would be talking to their passengers about what stocks they were making tons of money on, how that they should be in the market as well, and those kind of things. And it sounds a lot like that. That in and of itself isn't necessarily a problem per se, but it may be a sign that you may be running out of incremental buyers to participate in the market and continue to push the price up through demand. Yeah, you're running out of idiots. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's start to move backwards in time. So how about the housing bubble of the mid-2000s? Stephen, you were mentioning about that. Could you talk a little bit about what you saw going on there and what you think led to that housing price inflation and the speculation? Yeah, just like I remember I went to business school for my undergrad. And so I remember professors talking about investing in a home is one thing, but then the whole mortgage loan application process is, a, is another and then you had like this mechanism that would just churn out loans and the process for, you know, originally I had good intentions to meet out qualifiable applicants for these home mortgages. And Wall Street would love these type of deals because most of these mortgages were for 15 and 30 year investments. But then somewhere along the lines, you know, the red tape kind of loosened up or predatory lending practices were more part of the routine. And so you had buyers unwillingly getting involved into these sticky investments. And uh, one thing led to another. And these toxic assets would just appropriate on top of each other. And then you have a bubble bursting. Banks are collapsing. Bailouts are occurring. Actually, I, I did want to mention something, Dallas. I remember when I finished college, you, we were talking about hot commodities. Yeah, that book, the book written by Jim Rogers. One big takeaway that I liked about it, and I read it around 2010, so like right after the aftermath, he was putting the perspective of real estate is just another type of investment class. You know, it's like if you want to buy precious metals, you can buy gold, you can buy silver. If you want to get into commodities, you know, there's wheat, there's corn, all these different types of investment classes. And so real estate kind of got, it got housed, no pun intended, <laughs> into this type of investment class that people would just be speculative upon. And, and that's where one of the leading factors up to the market crash. Yeah, to really study what happened with the, the housing crash in 08 and 09, I think we have to go back even further in history to the founding of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, because yeah. those government organizations, especially Fannie Mae, was first instituted in 1938, right during the Great Depression. And the purpose of Fannie and Freddie was to provide liquidity to the mortgage markets. But basically what happened is that Ideally, before Fannie and Freddie, you'd have mortgages made by banks, and those mortgages would just stay on the books of the banks. But with Fannie and Freddie basically securitizing mortgages, so banks could make a loan, a home loan, for instance, and then they could just 
sell it to Fannie and Freddie, then Fannie and Freddie would securitize and investors could put those pools of mortgages in their investment portfolios. But the problem with all that is that since banks were no longer keeping these mortgages on their own books and they knew they could just make a loan and then have Fannie and Freddie securitize it, it lowered lending standards even further. And so then, especially starting in the year 2000 and after that, you'd have a lot of mortgage brokers and mortgage lenders just propping up and anybody who could, anybody who had any kind of an income at all or not even could get, could get a home loan. And so you had Fannie and Freddie just buying up all these mortgages and securitizing it. And so if they kept their, le- their lending standards stringent, the housing bubble crash may not have happened. Yeah, I agree with everything else you've said that it's it's just about you know lax lending requirements. But going and looking at you know the history of Fannie and Freddie, you know you, you see similarities to that as well as the establishment of the FDIC back in the 1930s. You know which which we'll touch on a little bit later too. So yeah, those are my thoughts. I think you always have to go back and take at least one, if not two, if not ten steps back in history to look at what were the factors that led to the environment and the breeding ground to create such an environment for a bubble. With the housing crisis, there is exactly what you were saying about the existence of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who are government-sponsored entities that are willing to buy mortgages from banks or whoever the issuers were, regardless of their quality, because they're sponsored by the government, and so they don't care. They'll just guarantee any loan. But in addition to that, the Federal Reserve also cut the Fed funds rate from 6.5% in 2000. And because of 9-11 and the bursting of the dot-com bubble, which we'll get to after this, the Federal Reserve was trying to stimulate the economy. So they cut the interest rates from 6.5% in 2000 to only 1% in 2003, which is extremely stimulative to the economy. If you reduce the cost of borrow by 5.5%, people are going to borrow a whole lot more. So when you couple that with reducing the lending requirements for getting a home, instead of having to put 20% down on a down payment, you reduce it down to 3% or it got down to 0% in some cases. I think. 0%. If the down payment is coming from 20% down to 0% and the mortgage rate that you're having to pay is coming down by 5% or so, that's going to be extremely stimulative to the housing market, which it was. The combination of those things and the guarantee of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae to buy these loans, no matter how good they were or how likely it was for the borrowers to repay them, all those factors contributed together to lead to rampant speculation in the housing market. And instead of people buying homes just for the sake of living in them, you had the popularity emerge to do house flipping, which... I don't think even existed decades ago. The, <laughs> the concept came because prices were going up so fast that it, yeah. it made it worth it. Because if you think about it, the cost to buy and sell a home between all the transaction costs and the closing costs and all that stuff is very expensive. But right. if prices are moving so fast and you can get the leverage that you can't get in most other investments, then people are willing to do it. So I think that definitely was some strong breeding ground for a bubble but that seems pretty different to me from from the current situation which we're looking at with Bitcoin. But how about the uh, dot-com bubble? What are your thoughts on that? 
Actually, Dallas, I want to throw something else in there. With the housing bubble, you also had adjustable rate mortgages, which a lot of homeowners were buying those things, which your mortgage payment fluctuates based on changes in interest rates. And you had a lot of mortgage brokers just trying to talk homeowners into getting these getting these home loans. And they want to get as much house as they possibly could for the, for the money. And so they got them into these adjustable rate mortgages. And all of a sudden, interest rates go up. And these homeowners who are on, you know, fixed salaries, you know, it's just absolutely disastrous for them. But I remember really you know, afford it when it was on the low teaser rate. So once it goes up, higher, that's exactly they right. Afford it at all. And you were talking about house flipping. I remember a comic making a joke. He was talking about complaining about the U.S. budget deficit. He said, you know, for a trillion dollars, you know, we could buy Mexico, fix it up and flip it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. That is a good joke. <laughs> All right, so we have plenty more we could be talking about on the bubble situation, so I'm going to go ahead and cut off the discussion here, and then we'll go ahead and continue the discussion next week, go further into some specific examples in history. Don't forget, you can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. 